Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Perhaps um, our most notable pandemic purchase, that's my wife, Laura, and I, who's back there, She's back. We've had a bit of sickness through our home, and um, she is back. And, but, the, but the most notable purchase that we've made was an, express, an espresso maker. Um, when we were first married, we had one of those little like tea kettle ones, you know, um, that sits on the top of the stove. And that was fine and well, but this thing, I mean, this thing is it's legit. So I would like, if you're a coffee fan, I would, I would, I'm an amateur barista, but I would wager that I could rival any second wave coffee shop that you've been to. I mean, I'm talking about the Caribou's and the Starbucks and, you know, I, I think I could make a latte, I could make a cappuccino as good as anything you would get there. I can't quite get to that third wave, you know, you, you coffee snobs, right, where it's the only, you know, those one-stop coffee shops where they make something that looks like a science experiment over your coffee. I can't quite cut that, you know. We would have had to, you know, like take a loan out for, you know, a coffee machine that would be as big as our oven in order to make something like that. But, but this thing makes good coffee. And I was downstairs because I have an office down there working this last week, and above me I heard nothing that could be described besides chaos. I have four children, and it just got to that point in the afternoon where all was breaking loose. It happens from time to time. Um, and so I was like, okay. I, I went upstairs and just sort of quietly started making coffee. Um, and I, after a few minutes, produced this wonderful little decaf latte and presented it to my lovely wife, Laura. And she came over and she said to me, you didn't need to do that. Of course, to which I responded, of course I didn't. I didn't have to do that. I wanted to do that, right? Because I've learned over the course of time that there are a few things that encourage her spirits, like a good cup of coffee. And a simple thing like that goes a long way to helping her stay in the, the hard fight of mothering and even of teaching our kids um, in our home right now. And so, um, but I did it because I wanted to serve her, to please her. I knew what she enjoys, what brings her joy. And I've learned that over time as I've gotten to know her. And the same thing is true, perhaps your roommate, if you have one, is not your spouse, but perhaps they're a friend. Um, this worked also with my college roommates. As I got to know one of my favorite roommates, this guy named Rajiv, I knew that like nothing made his day. Like my grandma's goulash recipe, like a 10-minute prayer break, and complete shenanigans, like playing basketball outside of our window into the hoop in the courtyard, or like finding a broken piece of furniture and sledding down Cass Street when it was finals week. Like that just like, that somehow made his day. And he was a pre-med student, so like I didn't get a lot of time with him, but I knew if I wanted to make something count to bring him joy, I knew how to do it. And isn't it true that the more you get to know someone, the more you learn what tends to please them or bring them joy. We're going to talk more about that today, but I want to 
get back to a theme that we started the book on, which is this question of, what is God's will for us? What does God really want? Or to put it another way, what, what pleases God? And to do that, I want to um, basically give us a roadmap of, of three points. The first is the destination. The second is the map. And the third is the guide, okay? The destination, the map, and the guide. So imagine for a moment with me, let's talk the destination, that it's morning or midday or evening, and, and our guys, Paul and Pappy and um, Timothy, are on their knees on hard stone floor because they're in prison. And they're thinking of this great little church at Colossae. And they're going, we want to pray for these dear brothers and sisters in the faith who've come to see Jesus for who he is. And here's what we're going to pray for them. We're, going, we're not going to even cease praying, which means probably not like that they prayed 24 hours a day, but that they had regular prayer. And in all of their regular prayers, maybe it was three times a day, as was Jewish custom, they're remembering the church at Colossae and praying this, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. There's that word again. In all spiritual wisdom and insight. So what are they praying? They're asking that the church would be filled with a knowledge, an understanding of God's will. And, and what this is getting at is a kind of, you can see it in the language, spiritual understanding. This is the closest we get in this chapter to a nod to the Holy Spirit, which is here in this letter, because the Spirit of God is going to bring them to a, a knowledge and understanding of how God works, what God's heart is, and what he wants for the church. They want this church to know what God desires. And not just sort of some perhaps high and lofty, transcendent knowledge or secrets about God. That's not what this is after here. Because it says pretty clearly, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which, of course, are two words that you see often paired together in the scriptures, a lot of times in the book of Proverbs. And what he's getting at here is the Spirit of God brings about a kind of knowledge and understanding that's eminently practical, ethical even, that shapes the way that you live life. And so if you look at different translations, like the message, for, for example, it says that they're praying that they would have wise minds and spirits attuned to his will, that they would live by the insight that the Holy Spirit gives for how to please God and to walk in his ways. Which is to say that being filled with the Spirit or having spiritual wisdom and knowledge has far more to do with ethics than it does with experience. Now, the Holy Spirit can bring these incredible experiences to the church, these heightened encounters with the living God, working the miraculous, stuff that just takes our breath away. Perhaps you've had moments like that where you've encountered God, and those moments are real and they do happen, but what Paul's getting at here is the Holy Spirit is really practical in helping us learn how to live according to God's will. He helps us move from sort of foolish to faithful. He helps us move um, in a way that we have a sound mind, that we've come to our senses 
and are living in a way that, of course, has reference to God and wants to seek his will. So that's what they're praying. They're praying for them to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. But why are they praying? Here's why. He goes on. He says, so as, verse 10, so here's the reason we're praying, why we're praying, is that you would, with all this spiritual knowledge and understanding, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This, of course, is kind of like a a biblical idiom. Walking here refers to a a way of life, a kind of path. You could perhaps see it in your Bible, if you have a different translation, saying to live in a manner worthy of the Lord or to live to the Lord. That's the same sense. Living in a certain way is probably more familiar to us, but walking in a certain path was far more familiar to the ancient world. It was the way that they thought about wisdom, the way they thought about what your life was about, what it centered upon. They're to walk in a manner worthy, which is to say suitable, honoring with respect to the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So follow the logic with me. The more that you know the Lord, the more that you live unto the Lord, the more and the closer that you walk with the Lord, What's going on here is, is he's saying, he, he, this destination for the church, where I want them to go, what I want them to be about, is that they would know the Lord more so that they would live to please the Lord more. Knowledge of the person of God produces a kind of life that's pleasing to God. The destination that he has in mind is not about a kind of content that they must master. It's about a kind of connection that they want to live with, to live with the Lord in a kind of closeness and commitment where we care about what he cares about, where we desire to please him. But here's the catch. If a deeper knowing of God is meant to live to a more devoted living for God, there is a problem, right? Because for us, oftentimes we might, we might not walk in a manner worthy of God if we're still wondering if God is worthy. Have you ever wondered that? Like, is it really worth it for me to live out my faith here? Is it going to be really worth it to hold to what the scriptures say over here? Is God really worth my life and my hope? Perhaps there's a specific thing that you wonder that about. Or perhaps there's far more of a general sense of, I just don't know if it's worth living to please the Lord. Perhaps because I still have some problems with the Lord which is true for many in our society today. People have some real problems with Jesus, some real problems with God, and maybe you do as well. Perhaps your view of God has sort of been twisted slightly to see him as far more cruel and controlling. Perhaps your perception of God is is that he's distant and out of touch with what's happening in my life and happening in our world. If your experience of God has not made him slightly distorted, perhaps what's happened is your experience of God or of church has made your view of God somewhat distrusting. 
Maybe there is a sense in which authority itself is something that can't be trusted. And then if I'm going to live for any authority, particularly for God as an authority, I'm just having a hard time because I don't think authority can be used for good. At least I don't see it used that way very much at all. If I'm going to please him, he's obviously got to be in a position as the one worthy to be pleased, as the authority in which I trust. Or perhaps you've just seen and had a view of church that's really dysfunctional. And so you go, why would I live to please the head of that thing? If the church is the body and he's the head, if he's the Lord or if he is the husband and that's the bride, my encounter with those people make it so I'm not quite so sure I want to live for their Lord. There are a lot of different reasons where we might get to the point where we go, I don't know if it's really worth it. I don't know if he's worthy of going all in such that my life becomes about the destination of living to please him. Here's what I want to do. I want to turn to the map. Because I think in the map that the Apostle Paul gives to us here of what it looks like to please the Lord, there might be a few answers for us that, that, that counter some of the issues that we have when it comes to pleasing the Lord. Now, I can't promise to solve all of the problems that you might have or the hesitations you might feel for living for God. But I can promise you that this is a place where if you have problems with God, you are welcome with God's people. Because people here have wrestled through some of those obstacles. People here have expressed many of those doubts. People here have come to, to see Jesus in a way that reassures their faith and encourages them to follow. And I think you can too. And so let's look at this map. Because in here, in Colossians, we have a map with a few clear markers now, the New Testament gives plenty of markers about what it means to please God, right? If you've missed this, it's kind of a major theme in the Bible, right? Like presenting your body as a living sacrifice pleases the Lord. Like when you look out for the weaker brother or sister, that pleases the Lord. When you teach the word in truth or stand up for truth, that pleases the Lord. Right? When you pray for those who are in authority, that pleases the Lord. Right? When you support a family member in need, that pleases the Lord. Right? When you share what you have, that pleases the Lord. When you keep the commandments and love your neighbor, that pleases the Lord. There are so many different commands tied to this phrase that we would live in a way that's fully pleasing to him. How does Colossians do it? Well, this is like one crazy long sentence. But if you're studying sort of Greek or English, there are four participles, four markers, and I've highlighted them for you. And convenient for us in English, they all end the same. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, one word in the original, with all power that's modifying the strength, according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience with joy. And here's the fourth one, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints 
and light. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's our marker number one on the map. Growing, increasing in the knowledge of God. That's marker number two. Depending on the Lord's strength. Being strengthened by him, number three. And then giving thanks to the Lord. That's number four. I want to take the next few minutes just to sort of walk through each of those to give them a little bit more life for us to grab hold of them. Here's the first one, bearing fruit in every good work. This is a nod back to the garden, to the beginning, where, of course, God's first people were encouraged to bear fruit and multiply and to cultivate and steward the earth. This is going saying, hey, part of what pleases the Lord is when you take up that original charge of Adam and Eve in those first days where they were bearing fruit by stewarding God's creation and, and, and doing good to it, doing good to one another, which is to say, pleasing the Lord is something you were made to do. It's something that you were made in the very image and likeness of God to embrace and to do. Good works is, is part of the very story of creation. It's part of the design of redemption. It's part of what makes you come alive as a person is when you begin to see, hey, this is how I can uniquely reflect God's heart as a creator. This is how I can establish good and truth and beauty in the world. This is what it means for me to do and offer something good to this existence. When you do that, you find a bit of your purpose and you come alive as a human because that's how God's made you, which is to say that living to please the Lord is in no way settling for less. It's actually living for more. It's living more full than you would living to please yourself. It's living in line with how you were made and how you will flourish to bear fruit in every good work. And notice the every good work, meaning that as you do what you do, whether that's in the marketplace, or whether that's in your family, whether that's in a nonprofit, or whether that's in some form of ministry, or whether that's in the arts, whatever you do unto the Lord as a way of pleasing the Lord has this kind of kingdom value to it such that you acknowledge God and you're doing it by faith and therefore it serves to even adorn the faith that you hold, showing others the beauty of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, what is the Lord leading you to do? Is there a good work he's put on your heart? The smaller the better, by the way. Because when we do small things, they have a way of compounding into big things with great impact. This is not, hey, figure out some great, daring move that you got to do this week. This is living simply for the Lord, for the good of his creation and his kingdom. And you'll find a kind of purpose and fulfillment in that. How is the Lord asking you to do that? Not, not just bearing fruit, but growing in the knowledge of God. That's what pleases the Lord when we have this continual, increasing, more and more, better and better understanding of what God is like. And when I see that knowledge word, my mind immediately goes to the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day be like the waters that cover the sea. 
the knowledge of God's glory will be so all-encompassing and consuming that we will not see, we will not miss it anywhere. There is a kind of broad and vast knowledge of God that he wants for us. My mind also goes to 2 Corinthians where it says, for God said, let the light, let light shine out of the darkness. The God who said that has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That there's a kind of knowing of God, there's a kind of glory of God that's revealed in Jesus when God shines into your heart and awakens your, your soul and your eyes to see him for who he is. And if that hasn't happened for you, like we've been praying that it would happen for you even today, that you would see afresh or for the first time who Jesus is. But this is, again, not just content knowledge. This is knowledge of God's heart, knowledge of what he's like, not an abstract idea, but a kind of affection, especially the affection that God has for you. This book, Knowledge of the Holy, has been something that we've pulled from over the years as a church. It's written by A.W. Tozer, um, who's a great spiritual writer and thinker of the 20th century, also a pastor and Perhaps one of his favorite or most famous lines is this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, he goes on, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And this is true not only in the individual Christian, but in the company of Christians together with a church. Always the most revealing thing about a church is her ideas about God. What we think about God matters. And and if you're still like wrestling with what do I think about God or how do I grow in my knowledge and understanding of God, there's two books that I have to commend to you. Um, Tozer is a great one. Um, He's an old school. He's a classic, um, right? But, and I would would, would recommend C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, which we'll get to in a minute. He's also a classic for the 20th century. But if you wanna move to the 21st century, this little book, Experiencing the Trinity, mine's all you know, bent and marked up, um, is powerful because it's really short, chapter by chapter, introducing you to the character of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what it's like to know experientially this triune God. The author, Joe Thorne, wrote it in his own season of wrestling and suffering. It connects so readily to life in all of its messiness, experiencing the Trinity. And then this book, Gentle and Lowly, which is the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. This is also new by Dane Ortland, and it's a powerful picture of Jesus and his true heart in accordance with his own words where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, and if you come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. And so it gives this picture of Jesus that he's so accessible and hospitable and cares for the concerns of our life. It's powerful to introduce you to the heart of Jesus. If you want this, it's yours. Come up and grab it. I have extra copy. So, um, but how are we growing in our knowledge of God? 
That's a crucial question because when you stop growing in your knowledge of God, you will stop living to please the Lord. When your understanding of him becomes stagnant, I promise you, your desire to live for him will also become stagnant. But if God is alive and growing and captivating for you in new ways, you will be filled with motivation to serve him. And then the next one, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So what kind of power? According to the very like dynamite, glorious power of God. There's this play on words here that literally is like dynamus. It is the word we get, dynamite. It's this powerful force. And, and the idea here is that Christians are not displeasing when they need God. Right? That, when you don't have your stuff together and you don't feel quite self-sufficient and you're feeling like, I'm going to need some help, some strength, some resources from the Lord, you're not stepping out of God's will. You're stepping right into it. Right? That is the place he most wants you to be. You don't burden him, but his very heart goes out to you. It's not that you need to hide your need when it comes to Jesus It's that your need is meant to drive you to him, and he so wants to meet it with all of his glorious power, which, of course, helps us when we need to endure and when we need to be patient and when we're lacking joy. Listen to what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says about this phrase. He says, endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what they show to an apparently impossible person. (laughs) I like that, right? So endurance when life seems impossible, and I'm not sure I can get through this. Patience when that person seems impossible, and I'm not sure I can love them. And joy to well up within me despite the challenges of this life. And then finally, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you, made you adequate to share with the inher- in the inheritance of the saints in light. The idea here is what's pleasing to the Lord is to remember the gospel, that the Father has brought you into his family, that he's, that he's adopted you as a son or a daughter, not because you deserve to be a part of the family, but, be, but be, even though you didn't, You've been qualified to be a part of the family by the one who is worthy, by the only son, by the Lord Jesus. And if you are thinking from Tozer, I'm not sure I can ever have thoughts about God that are sufficient enough and that's staggering, you should read C.S. Lewis who wants to take Tozer to task and say, he's wrong. I think they're both right. But this is C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. He goes, I read in a periodical the other day, periodical, We don't read those. Um, The fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, it's not. How God thinks of us is far more important, infinitely more important indeed, than how we think of him. It's of no importance except in relation to how he thinks of us. He goes on to say, It's written in the scriptures, not a periodical, the scriptures, that we shall stand before him. We shall appear 
shall be inspected before God. Right? And the promise of glory is a promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses to believe in him, shall actually survive the examination of God, that, that we shall find approval, that we shall please God, and to please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but to be delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in his son or his daughter. It seems impossible. A weighter burden of glory to which our thoughts can hardly sustain. That God will delight in us and we shall please him. Colossians 1 gives us the map, church. Four simple markers of bearing fruit in every good work, right? Of, of increasing in our knowledge of him, of depending on his strength, and of giving thanks because we've been qualified to be a part of the family. If that's the destination, and, and part, of the, part of the path of the map has been set, what I want you to see is that the gospel doesn't leave us there. It doesn't merely leave us with a goal and a plan, it offers to us a guide. It offers us the one whom we most need, the one who's gone before us and shown us the way, and the one who by his own glorious power can help us walk in that way as well. Look at, look at John in the eighth chapter and verse 29. He says this, Jesus says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I think we have this, Travis, if you want to flip. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus came onto the scene living in the will of God, always doing the things that are pleasing to the Father, which means that there's good news in Jesus that you'd have not just a higher bar and expectation, but you have a guide who wants to take you along the path, who knows the map himself, who's been to the destination, and who's fully convinced that he can help you get there as well. That in this life, you can live in a manner that's pleasing to him. Because he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of Colossians 1. He, he's the one who bore kingdom fruit in all of these good works he did completely recorded and fully explained in the Gospels themselves. He's the one who, who sought to know the will of the Lord and to live in a way that pleases the Lord. He's the one who depended on the, the dynamic strength of the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who endured, the one who was patient, the one who had joy, and he's the one whom the Father used to qualify you and me to be a part of the family. And how did Jesus please the Lord, not just representing the New Testament, but fulfilling the old? Well, he offered himself as a sacrifice, pleasing to him, so that in every regard, you would no longer have to live to prove yourself to God, but you would be free to live to please God. But grace means that great truth that you don't have anything to prove 
anymore to God. It, it is settled, approved of, done, loved. You are wrapped up in grace, and not just one time, but time and time again, grace upon grace. But church, don't let it be that just because you have nothing to prove, you stop living to please. The Lord's will for you is that you live to please him. And the gospel makes living to please him different. Different than living to please anyone else. Because in the gospel, you have this great portrait of the character of God. Someone who's trustworthy. Someone who's attuned to your sin and your suffering. Someone who has a heart full of compassion. The kind of authority figure that you can trust. Because not only does he have a position, but his credibility is proven. In the gospel, you have this statement that Jesus' desire for his church is that they would reflect his own goodness and glory. It's not that we would be a mess, though times we are, but that we would be maturing, growing up in every way into the Lord Jesus, who always lived in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. Let me pray. God, you have, have shown us. You've, you've revealed in this book that it is not settling for us to live for you, but it's life-giving. We were made to serve you, made to please you, made to live in reference to you, made to live by faith in all of life, made to offer all of us heart, soul, mind, and strength to you and to your kingdom. And so my prayer this morning, God, is that having been freed from the need to prove, we might begin to live to please, to live in a manner worthy of you because you're worthy. You're the one who's worthy. And so may we begin to walk with you as our guide along the map that you have laid out toward the destination that you know and have been to and can get us there to as well. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with all spiritual wisdom and knowledge so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you and do so in such a way that adorns the good news to a watching world that shines brighter and brighter day after day, that points people to the one who has a love that is better than life. It's for the sake of your beautiful name we pray. Amen.